Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at phoebe.substack.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Anna Z. Gray, writer and founder of Club Vintage, the self-described department store of vintage sellers. I met Anna several years ago when we were both living in New York City and Anna was writing things I would buy if I didn't have to pay rent, a very funny shopping newsletter filled with obscure and beautiful pieces you definitely won't find on an Instagram influencer's Amazon storefront. Anna still writes the newsletter and she's also since parlayed her distinct sense of taste into Club Vintage, which offers a platform for vintage sellers to sell their wares from its website as well as its stylish brick and mortar locations in New York and Los Angeles. Having long appreciated Anna's idiosyncratic writing voice and curious approach to life, I was glad to have the opportunity to reconnect with her and speak about consumerism, curation, cults and much more. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Anna. How are you? Lovely to see your face. Hi, Phoebe. So nice to see your face. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little. I'm a little fatigued. I um, winter is a struggle for me. How do you feel about it? I appreciate it as a marker of time. Um, and I try to find optimism in like, oh, well, now I can wear those clothes that I can't wear the rest of the time. But it's hard. Yeah, you're still in New York, right? I'm still in New York, haven't left. My relationship with New York turned 16 in August, which is crazy. You're a lifer now. Lifer. I just don't know where else I'd go. Maybe London, actually. I've been thinking that last year. But for now... New York it is. I reckon you should stay there because not, not not that I wouldn't love to have you in London and please do play a bit pay a visit but I don't know man I mean my life kind of brought me back to London in very convoluted ways but I think if you're just someone who loves New York it just doesn't leave the body and and it's almost like even though I'm a Londoner born and raised yeah there's something about my soul that feels more at peace in New York and so when I'm you know the fact that I don't live there is a little bit it's like a it's like a little niggle little niggle on me at all times, but then of course like it's hard to talk yourself into living in New York again if you've left because it's a fucking nightmare trying to live there <laughs> you, you know like trying to get an apartment and pay for things and yeah it's like once you've it's it's like leaving an expensive property I mean it's literally like leaving an expensive property market like once you've checked out it's really hard to like gear yourself up to check back in. Yeah. Well, everything starts to feel, make you feel like a sucker, right? You're like, who's paying these prices? I am. You're like, how is this? And then you're like, I have to, if I want to come back into this housing market. And I've been having this conversation a lot with friends lately and they're like, it's outright. And I'm like, we're sounding really old. Or no, old. but it's a perennial conversation. Like people in London talk about the weather, people in LA talk about their health and people in New York talk about rent. Like it's true. Well, actually, everyone talks about rent everywhere now because rent's a nightmare globally. But his, his people have been in New York are like have been dominating that rent conversation for a while, <laughs> hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hope that 
the rent rent and property concerns aside new york is is still feeling feeling good to you yeah i love it here it's just so good at in the same way that you like go look at the stars or stand next to the ocean you're constantly reminded that the space you take up is so small and unimportant and i think that's really good for the ego well it's really good for my ego anyway i started to get too big for my britches and i like being beaten down a little bit it's brought it's masochistic is what it is yeah but i think it's important well it's simultaneously a sort of ego inflating kind of city and you kind of have to have a bit of bravado to get through it but then yeah every day you're reminded that this machine is much bigger than you yeah it's it's interesting. I mean, we can hold so many truths at the same time, but it's like you can be beaten down and then at the same moment be like, but I am not dead yet. <laughs> I'm still here. Still here. And so carrying those two things is like what wakes me up every morning. I'm like, I'm still here. Still got it. How does it feel to, you're a New York business owner now. You have a physical. I'm a New York and an, and an LA business owner. I know. I know. But what does it feel like? Which is so crazy. I feel like New York's such a... My friend Sandeep, I don't know if you've ever met her, she owns this store called Salter House, really beautiful store in Brooklyn. Right? Yeah, yeah. She actually just opened one in the East Village. Um, and I just feel like the rhythm of... I mean, I don't aspire to uh, retail personally, but the rhythm of her life as someone who runs stores, I actually think is really well suited to New York living. And I feel like it's actually a really nice place. Not that she's in her store all day long, as I'm sure you aren't. But what what has it been like? How is the physical? So tell us a little bit about Club Vintage. And then um, and, and I'm interested to know like what the, the experience of sort of having that physical space in New York has been like. Yeah. Um, so Club Vintage is the department store of vintage sellers. Uh, I've been in the resale retail game full time for five years. And since 2018, um, I had started another peer to peer platform before Club Vintage. And I just wanted to build something that was like very focused on vendor support. My vendors, I mean, like the professional people who have the Etsy shops, have their own websites, sell on Depop, who are like on the ground sourcing things, styling them, shooting them, fixing them, and just like getting pieces back into the circular economy. I feel like a lot of resale or I know that a lot of resale is focused on the customer acquisition side of things. And I didn't feel like enough was being done to be like, hey, do you need help with your business? Like what what do you need to be do what you're doing but more efficiently and with more help. So that's the impetus behind what Club Vintage is as a platform. We have a store in New York. We have a store in LA. And I'm hoping to open two more this year. Damn. Mostly because so like, I think it's important to be in multiple cities. And also the consignment model means we only really effectively make money if we're selling like so much stuff. <laughs> way more stuff than one single store could hold. Um, and then to answer your question about what it's like being a store owner, it's funny because I've worked in retail since I was 14. Like I, my first job was at an antique store and then my when I was in high school and then I went to go work for Nordstrom and I was like a shoe salesperson on the shoe floor, <laughs> the women's shoe floor. Um, 
And for so long, I remember probably in like 2015, I was in Paris. I was helping my friend do sales for her showroom. We would all we would all go to Paris for a market week because it was just like an excuse to hang out together in Paris from New York or LA or Italy or wherever. And um, I remember having a conversation with him and he was like, all I want to do is open a store. And I was like, who wants to open brick and mortar retail? Like that's a, like the future is e-com. We should all be focusing on selling shit online, which was sort of, I mean, it was true at the time, but also a little naive. And then I, his response to me was like, but what's interesting to me about retail is that physical retail is that you are letting someone walk into the version of your brain that you want them to see or your mind. And I was like, Oh, that's sort of interesting. And I, that stuck with me for so many years. Um, he did go on open source, uh, but I have never wanted to be a store owner. Like that part of it is actually interesting to me. I think a lot of it is a super drag, <laughs> like customer service, just meeting strangers where they need to be met who don't understand what's going on, um, which is just part of the job. And sometimes that's really, oftentimes that's really rewarding. Um, but it's not what my interest is in. My interest is in like, I guess it is in world building, but I mean, that sounds a little pompous, but you know what I mean? It's funny, it's funny. <laughs> like creating oh. a... We're all, we're all yeah, building walls like, of one kind or another. <laughs> <laughs> we're just trying to put our blinders on and be like, this is all that's important. Don't look at this other stuff. Um, so having retail has been interesting. Having retail in New York, I don't know. No one's ever asked me this question. It's Part of it is so rewarding because you're just interacting with people who come in and are like, wow, this place is cool. And I'm like, oh my God, are you sure you think so? <laughs> And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is cool. And I'm like, wow, thank you so much. Because we spend a lot and it's maybe it's me. Maybe it's me because I'm a woman. I don't know. Maybe it's all of us. But um, the validation is great. But I'm like, why do I need the validation to know that I'm doing a good job instead of being like the sales are good. So something's working or like the vendors are happy. So something's working. I need these people to be like, Hey, I really like what you're doing. Total stranger. I'm like, oh, we're doing it. We're doing a good job. So having a store is weird. Yeah. And also like, I know you've been in this kind of world in different capacities for a long time, but this is a pretty radical departure for you or a new venture still. I mean, I'm sure, you know, at this point you feel like you've been doing it forever, but this is still kind of new and like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if I opened a physical space, I'd definitely want people, strangers to tell me that they liked it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do, you have your library. Yeah. I mean, every, every time people say, you know, that's so cool. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think so. And you're, are you a little <laughs> bit surprised? I mean, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, that's more like a creative project than a business. And I think, you know, so the, the kind of the, the pressure is different. The pressure is different. And I would imagine that, like, having commercial space in New York is, you know, like I said, I understand why you want to hear people respond to it. Um, I don't know. I think, to me, New York is such, it's still such a choppy shoppy shop kind of pl like you know like one of the things I love about New York is 
the I'm not, I'm not a huge shopper. It's not something I necessarily do for fun, but I feel like still there's like retail hubs in New York. Obviously, my friend Kai's store, Sincerely Tommy, I feel like is really um, important in that community. And um, she was telling me while I was there recently about another store that's open in the, I think it's in the Lower East Side that she now hangs out at. That seems like it's doing a similar vibe. I can't remember what it's called. You'd know it for sure. You probably like best friends with her owns it or something. Um, like, <laughs> Is it Colbo? Yeah. There you go. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> but like i live above it wait which store is it i think it's that one i, know, I probably do yeah it's that one and and how and how and then how does that contrast to like your experiences are you do you are you sort of like splitting your time between new york and la um i have an excellent team in la just the universe threw us together so i don't have to be there that often but i go like every six to eight weeks check in do events make sure everyone's feeling okay um it's so funny i never thought i'd open a store i don't i have a really uh complicated it's not complicated i have a very simple dislike for la <laughs> really even now which is going yeah well la is totally fine when i'm working because when i'm there i'm there for a limited amount of time and i have my to-do list is full every day so i'm like i have stuff to do i have tasks to complete i have places to drive to um I have people to talk to. And so that keeps me occupied. But in, in ways that lots and lots of people have spoken and written about the way that L- LA is completely different from New York is what we were saying a few minutes ago that like, the e- there's too much time and space for the ego to spin and like the existential crises rear their terrifying heads. Um, and it's just a lonely city. Do you think it is still now? Yeah. I think if I moved to LA, I'd be so lonely. I mean, I definitely was lonely when I lived there, but now I sort of like have fantasies about living in the sunshine again. So I'm like, maybe I wouldn't be lonely anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the way that people socialize there is just so different. When I was living in LA, I was like driving to Gelson's just to interact with strangers, you know? I was like, I need to see someone. Right. And I was going to say that about a store, to have a store there. Like when you think about the contrast of how people interact with a retail space in New York versus LA, like in New York, you're just walking along the street, you pop in wherever, you know, something that catches your eye, you keep it moving. You, like it's not a thought out. Whereas I feel like in LA, you could orient a whole afternoon around going to one store, which is maybe good for business. Yeah, totally. Kind of weird for your mind. <laughs> I think it's weird for the mind. I think it's hard. It's it, in New York, people are happy to travel to see you. Like the club vintage is in the seaport, which now is pretty popular. And there's like lots of things to do. There's a McNally, there's the tin building. There are various places to shop. Um, but when I opened there, they were just starting to crank up their programming. And it was, there was not a lot of just random foot traffic. Whereas, but it didn't matter because people in New York are like, oh, I live in Bushwick. I live in Astoria. Like, I don't care. I'll hop on the train. I want to check out that store. It's like already part of the everyday ritual of like commuting, which you don't, which means you don't mind sort of going a little bit out of your way to see something that you think might make you happy or entertained or whatever it is. 
Whereas in LA, that mindset is totally different. You have to have like an itinerary. And so where you are in LA is super important. And we're in Culver City, which is a little tricky. And I think I have to move it, which is fine. Everything's an experiment. But I was like, oh, it's fine. Like people in New York, everyone travels to the seaport. Why wouldn't people travel to see the club vintage wherever it is in LA? And I'm like, hmm, they actually won't. And I'm basing this purely on like anecdotal, like some of my very best friends live in LA and they haven't even been to my store yet. I'm like, you guys, <laughs> nor do I blame them. They have like babies and they have important jobs and what, and they live 45 minutes away. It's like, you got to go where your people are. London's kind of like that. Yeah, true. London's a bitch of a city to get around. I mean, New York is unparalleled in terms of like, like I feel like even if you are 40 minutes away, it just somehow feels faster. Like, and and, and hanging out with people is just so much easier. I, I really can't quite articulate it because it's not like New York's a tiny city or all my friends live in one place anymore. Like, it's just it's just easier to move. It's more efficient to move around. LA is such a clunky city to get. I mean, it's not really a city in that sense. And, but London technically is, but it's clunky as hell to get around London. I mean, you know, I feel like your subway systems are pretty good in London, but you are, I don't know. They are, but it's huge. This city, it's absolutely huge. And, um, yeah, people just can't be asked. (laughs) Um, I wonder if it's in like an not to make it too amorphous, but I wonder if it's an energy thing. Like you go outside and you you go to a neighborhood that you're unfamiliar with in New York, and you're like, "Wow, this feels different," and that's exciting. Or pick an adjective, and then whereas in LA and in London, because everything is so separate from each other, maybe it feel I don't know. We could talk about this for a long time. I think it's part, yeah, probably that. There's also a lot more residential, um, you know, a lot more of the space in London is residential as it is in LA. Like, you know, I live on, I mean, I don't live far from stores, but like I live on a street which has no stores on it. And, you know, that's totally normal in London. Like in New York, who... Who live, like there's not many blocks which don't have at least a bodega on the corner, you know. There's just it's true, and so you just constantly feel like plugged in in a way. I think, yeah. You know? You're primed for interacting with the commercial. <laughs> well, yeah, and consumption, which is actually and something I definitely I wanted to. I mean, God, like it's impossible to leave the house without spending money in New York. Um, it's crazy i spend money without even leaving the house the era of the now now that we're in the era of the uh like nine dollar cappuccino in new york which is for not good great times (laughs) no and it's everything's shocking and then also so predictable at the same time where i'm like like now it's cheaper for me to use one of those delivery grocery delivery services than it is for me to go to my bodega yeah, like, that's what's the world come yeah, to? Thought of it in New York without bodegas is very sad. Mm-hmm. But they are. I mean, you go in like I mean, spending eleven dollars on a like a carton of oat milk is yeah, it's a little um, untenable. <laughs> untenable. Um, I want. So I read. You know, like I was saying to you off 
off off uh, record. Like I feel like I've, even though I haven't unfortunately um, spent much time with you since I was living in New York, I feel like I've been in a sort of like semi-parasocial relationship. I know it's not entirely parasocial. <laughs> I do. I have met you. <laughs> But we have spent in-person time yeah, together. I have physically sat in a room with you on numerous <laughs> But I've also been reading your newsletters for a long time. And I think you've got like such a singular writing voice. So it really is like in my head, like when I'm reading your newsletters, <laughs> your, your voice. And you've got a distinctive speaking voice. So it's like a combination yeah. of the two. I'm like, you're really in my, you've been in my, <laughs> you've been in my head for years, Anna. That um, earworm, that earworm anagram. I, I really enjoy your writing. I just want to say that um, it's Thank really you very much. The voice is distinctive, and um, I think your most recent newsletter was about consumerism, right? Like how mm-hmm. to. Well, tell me, you knew, is, is it still called things I would buy if I didn't have to pay rent? Because you, cause that was <laughs> yes. like kind of the precursor to Club Vintage, right? Your sort of like online curation where you'd find all these like sort of quite esoteric things on the internet and share them. And- <laughs> really expensive. <laughs> really, but also like kind of delightfully bizarre. Like I, I don't, they, you know, this wasn't generic. These weren't generic no. finds. Like they I'm were, like, they were you deep can go If you're looking for the perfect pair of jeans, I am not the newsletter for you. <laughs> if you need. She's not going to be giving you a classic straight leg denim, dark denim jean, no. guys. She's going to be giving you like mm-hmm. a bejeweled slipper from the 18th century <laughs> that you probably yeah, should and frame. Yeah, your background on who wore it. Yeah, you should frame it. But that's For most fun. of these things, I'm like, frame it. <laughs> or just admire well, it from a distance. Yeah, and that was, um, that was uh, an, a really, you know, I think there's so much being written now about how we stop this horrific cycle of consumerism we're all in even when we're people who really don't think of ourselves as horrific consumers like like you say even if you're not buying you know fashion nova or sheen or whatever it is it's all i sometimes i'm always like i feel the amex notifications just keep pinging and i'm like what am i even buying it's not even clothes it's just some endless just compulsion to buy shit oh i need some bathroom cleaner i need this type of you know whatever it is endless endless um but i did think that your your points were actually genuinely helpful and one of them being like just look at it you don't need to buy it i mean it's kind of crazy that has to be reiterated (laughs) but well it's it's really that's the formula is actually so simple. And listen, I'm not a perfect, thoughtful consumer. Like, I buy crazy, dumb shit all the time. Um, but I I also, what I didn't put in that newsletter, which probably would have been helpful, is I, I find that it's really easy for people to blame themselves, myself included, and it's better for us to have to to remind ourselves that it's not our fault (laughs) like Mm. the the fortitude one needs to ignore the way that we're consistently constantly bombarded by various overt or subversive advertising is 
untenable. Like there's no part of our phone or our computers, I guess, that doesn't, or just like walking around in the world that doesn't have, I think, what is it? We see an ad like every 30 seconds or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not, we shouldn't carry around the guilt that comes with succumbing to making that purchase. But I do think sort of sitting with it and analyzing it for a couple seconds is probably helpful. It's just hard. Like it's a, we live in an impossible world where it's um, there's just so much stuff being made, and none of it needs to be made for the most part, um, especially right. when it comes to clothing. Yeah, like the absolutely. amount of traveling that I've done, and you know, every time I travel, I'm like, oh, gotta check out like the flea market or those vintage stores that the internet says are interesting. I, I try and do that on every trip um, just to see what's out there and what people are interested in and how these store owners are, are um, curating their version of what vintage is. Um, and there's just like really all of these things that are being made don't need to be made. Like there's so much shit on the planet. There and does seem new. to be a lot. Everything's derivative style wise. It's like, yeah, you just gotta look a little, but then it's very hard to compete with the prices that the Sheehan's and the Fashion Nova's can offer. I'm like, oh, I love mm. your dress. Oops. And my friend's like, oh, I got it on ASOS. And I was like, why the fuck are you shopping on ASOS? And she's like, because I, I can be a little bit mean to her because we're friends. <laughs> and she's like, it was $18. And I was like, don't buy it. <laughs> She's like, yeah, yeah. feel it. it. Like, feels like good quality. I'm gonna have it for a long time, and I'm like, okay. You can't compete with eighteen dollars when it when it's like one hundred and fifty dollars on Etsy because it's from the actual seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, you clearly enjoy and are highly skilled at the hunt, um, yeah. and I, you know, you've created a, a platform for people to benefit from your. <laughs> curation skills but I guess for a lot of people like there's is a combination of a not quite clear on where to look although it's a little damn sight easier than it used to be even if you're not a vintage connoisseur and b um the instantaneousness of it I think shopping is fun right like whether we've been taught that it's fun and so we've just we're just that's how we think about it um or whether or not we just innately think it's fun could be a bit of both um that dopamine reward is very real. And at what point does shopping lose its efficacy? Like what point does rewarding yourself with something new, whether it's actually new or vintage, lose its efficacy because you're just so, because you're doing it so much, right? Like Mm -hmm. there are probably a million comparisons we could make here about tolerance. Um, but it's, and then also like, you know, there's something, when do you lose that, that special factor of being really excited to purchase something because you've been saving up for it because you've been thinking about it for years because you finally found it on Bestiaire for a reasonable price that you can afford because it reminds you of the thing you your grandma had or that show, that first show you went to when you were in fashion school, like whatever the emotional relationship is to the item there there's like that's an important part of the relationship that you have with it 
And if you're buying so many things, that lessens every time, right? So my question is like, at what point have you just totally dulled that nerve? And then what does it mean? Because I think especially working in fashion. I think for most people, like the nerve is so dulled. It's insane. It's crazy. Yeah. And And I like, um, uh, I think especially working in fashion, or maybe it's just actually getting older and sort of making more money as we get better at our jobs, hopefully. Um, but then you sort of, instead of being like, oh, I really, like when I was 17, I'm like, oh, I really want that thing because I think that thing will make my life better. And now that I'm in my 30s, it's like you start making, you start making your way up through this hierarchy of like, luxury fashion so you're just spending mm-hmm. more money on things mm-hmm. because it's Prada um, rather than it being and then that's like very reductive it's not that simple but you know what I mean you're like we, we're sort of all wanting to show these things to each other and maybe it's a little bit competitive and maybe we're vying for attention or something but there's like an element to it that like pushes us in the direction of luxury product and i'm thinking about it in terms of all this rhetoric about how luxury is getting like so out of control in terms of in terms of pricing Mm. chanel's hike on their bags i'm like what's happening (laughs) like we're all Mm -hmm. just sort of we're creating this bifurcation between the haves and have-nots which has always been there but it's perhaps getting worse i am not an economist (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? I, no, I think it's. I think the consensus is is getting one. I think that's a safe statement to make, whether you're an economist or not. I think we're at a weird inflection point with consumerism, where, like, as you say, a lot of people walk around with a lot of guilt. But at the same time, it's almost kind of impossible to resist. And then, like, you know, what is ethical consumption? There's no, no one really seems to know. But no. I do think this shift towards. Um, towards people buying so much more vintage, particularly young people. I mean, from what I understand, like a lot of younger people are really, it's much more their default to buy secondhand vintage than it is to necessarily, um, or maybe it's, again, it's probably evenly split people who go and spend, you know, a hundred dollars on 50 things from Shein. And then, but then there's also a really good number of 18 year olds who are like buying their sneakers on, on Depop. Yeah. I think, well, one, re- content, resale for new things is you're just going to get a better deal price-wise. So that makes sense for Gen Z where it's like affordable, makes it affordable for them for the most part. And two, I also think we're sort of inundated with the same version of the same style all the time and it gets really boring and vintage is... Yeah. I mean, that vintage for young people and me, well, for lots of people, is a way to be idiosyncratic in your the way that you're showing yourself to the world. Whereas, you know, we can, it's very, it's way easier and honestly cheaper for everybody to look exactly the same than it ever has been. And it's so yeah. boring. Even oh, with yeah. like it's face deadening. stuff. I'd say it's deadening it's deadening and I'm like people's faces are starting to look the same people's outfits are looking the same I'm like we gotta shake it up a bit guys 
And then, and that's kind of unfair because I'm talking about just like what's being served to us on the internet. Like obviously there are millions and billions of people who don't show their outfits online and probably look really cool. Um, you don't spend two, two grand every quarter on fillers to have the exact same face yeah, shape. Exactly. It's wild. So yeah, I think Kenzie it, loves, it is, it, loves vintage. As you say, it's not just about clothing. It's sort of like a sort of homogenization of aesthetics across yeah. across the board. I'm sure you know that. You know that writer, Carl Shaker. Do you uh, follow his work? I just think he's got interesting things to say about, like, you know, the sort of homogenization of taste and the role of the curator, which, you know, in different ways, both of us are playing, I guess, not to, I hope that doesn't sound self-righteous, but it's true, you know, like we're no. both sort of playing curatorial roles. And I think so many creative people now, as much out of necessity as um, any sort of like pompousness, position ourselves as curators of one kind or another, right? Like, yeah, well, how, it feels like yeah. we're, just there's so much to wade through that we're all looking for someone to you know that scene in Fleabag she's like I just want someone to tell me how to live (laughs) it's like that we're all just sort of exhausted and it's when you find someone who feels like you resonate with them on the internet or in person it feels so warm and you would you're gonna do whatever they say you know 100% to have smart kind thoughtful people in those positions because there's also the other option yeah i mean well also i think throughout most of humanity people turn to religion for guidelines on how to live and now um a lot of people don't use religion so it's either you know when it comes to consumption you're turning to cultural curators and then when it comes to your you know sort of spiritual and personal life that's why so many people who write like bullshit books on manifestation thrive in our culture and not not even necessarily yeah. saying i don't uh, ascribe to some of the principles of of that kind of thinking but like i do think it's so interesting that like i really think if i just position myself as some kind of quack spiritual leader I, that'd probably get a lot more traction in my career than i <laughs> than i do talking Man, about like raking books. in the dough God, I'm I mean, tempted. I'm not going to lie. I, it takes tempting. so little. Yeah. And I, it's the so bar funny is low. because the bar is so low. And I just watched um, Love Has Won. Love is One, that documentary yeah. about the woman in Colorado who was Mother God. Oh. And okay. yeah, the bar is so low. And, and all it really takes, it doesn't even take intelligence or charm like this woman wasn't particularly charismatic she just put in the hours of trying to connect it connect with these people who felt lost and that is all it took for her to sort of grow this bizarro cult that got yeah i mean it's a documentary on netflix that's if you're really trying to build a cult, which is really, you know, almost the purest approach because most people are just trying to shill shit on the internet. And 
I think that is almost even more straightforward because all you need to do is, you know, speaking of the algorithm is just sort of like create aesthetically neutral content that is somehow still just about aspirational enough to get people to buy in and share it. And then whatever the product is that you're attaching to that aesthetic, people are like, "Mm, this person seems to be onto something. It's so boring and it's so reductive of who we are as human beings that contain multitudes. And I struggle with it all the time. Like I have a small following on Instagram that I probably could, excuse me, grow that audience and like make more money off of it through spawn con or advertorial or what have you, but that all of it feels so disingenuous that Mm that it's disinteresting but also I don't it it doesn't allow for like I'm a weirdo I don't feel like I'm allowed to be the weirdo I actually am on the internet and it kind of comes back to like what do you share like do you what what personal information do you Phoebe want to put on the internet and like what's the thought process behind that like what we were talking about earlier and it's it is this weird the, the simpler you make yourself seem, the easier your brand is to swallow. And I've never been able to get behind that. Like, I love a run yeah. sentence. That absolutely. <laughs> like, I don't want to curb things because it's easier to understand. Also, then you kind of put yourself in a box where if you want to evolve or change, you're screwed, like, financially professionally you know i'm i'm reading uh naomi klein's new book doppelganger at the moment mm, yeah and um this one of the f- introductory chapters on is is on exactly this i mean it's not at this point it's nothing new to sort of make the statement that having a personal brand is reductive to the human experience and sort of like potentially like very um you know bad for the soul etc mm. um but it's also just, it's like, you know, a brand by, by its very nature is consistent. This is the point she makes, you know, that is the point of a brand is consistent. You know what you're going there to get. Um, that's not how humanity should work or evolve. And so if you establish a very strong personal brand online, which there's a massive economic imperative to do that. I mean, you know, like as even in my experience in my career, when I was sort of like, younger and maybe more sort of like willing to push very unconsciously I have to say even though that might sound disingenuous a sort of aesthetic that was very accessible and cute and like attractive and you know it was a lot easier for me to um get work get work yeah (laughs) because it, it was just it was just so much easier to package and sell and um when you bring in any kind of complexity or nuance, it's just like, Oh no, 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 that's, uh, I can't I quite get my head around that. seems interesting, but I'm not going to bother. So, which is why I'm you, half joking. You're not fitting into our creative deck. Hundred, Yeah. We can't like put you in this season, you know, this doesn't work with our, our Q2 like goals or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's, it's the a, bottom it's line, place, baby. It's a weird place <laughs> to exist as a creative, right? Because 
a creative I hate that as a noun but you know what I mean anyone who's sort of working yeah. selling their creative skills and taste for you know as a career in any capacity it's like on one level the the imperative to squash that into an incredibly um simplistic package has never been stronger but it, do, it doesn't sit like I've changed since I was 27 obviously you have to you, you know like <laughs> yeah. um, one would hope one would hope spiritually would but I tell you what economically economically I'd probably be a lot richer if I just stayed on the same track because I know same that's 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 what the algorithm likes right the cultural and economic algorithm yeah I mean that's why all the hotel lobbies look the same also airspace um airspace I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um obviously books and reading and I know you've got such a like curious mind and like you're you just your whole nature just it, it gives inquisitive um <laughs> thank you and you're welcome I mean I, I just say it because it's true you've just like yeah you've got like you're, you're just someone who's like engaged with life and um I know you grew up you had a kind of well from what I've read and understood you had quite like a bohemian quite, like sounds quite bohemian upbringing kind of moving around a lot and your parents are artistic and I know you spent is your dad actually Irish like born and raised or or oh yeah Irish born and raised Dublin Dublin born to Mullingar pipeline <laughs> oh great great crack yeah great um, crack. and you spent a spell of your childhood living in Ireland is that right yeah, so I my mom's Chinese. She was born in Taipei. My dad's Irish, and they met in New York in 1988. Fell in love, had a baby in 1989. <laughs> we're like, you know what? Oh, this was in New York and New Jersey, and they're like, you know what? We should move to Paris. Everyone's like, I mean, you have a baby. What are you gonna do? And they're like, whatever. She doesn't care. She doesn't. She's just a potato. So we went to Paris, <laughs> lived in some tiny studio apartment over the railroad, um, didn't have any money. They were like, shoot, this isn't as glam as we thought it was going to be. Let's go to Ireland because granny's there, my dad's mom. And that is like inbound support because community is important. Uh, so then we lived in Ireland for five years and during that time my little brother was born and then we moved back to New York or not New York America when I was nine to Virginia because my mom was like I am the only Chinese person in this bumfuck nowhere town get me out of here yeah fair enough and so then we moved to where my mother's mom grandma was because again community mm. uh, so yeah it is a little bohemian I think it just primed me for making friends with strangers and like being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm. Also, Irish people, I think, have got great, um, they're great like raconteurs and storytellers, I think. Yeah, they're so charming. Such a good storyteller, can do every accent and just really mm. funny. Well, he also looks like Daniel Day Lewis, so he's very handsome. <laughs> Yeah, people love him. He makes friends everywhere. You also wrote something recently about which I thought was really interesting about how the first chunk of your life really just sort of like shapes your dominant aesthetic from there on in, which I think is so so real. Like, I mean, obviously I hope it's evolved a bit, but really my taste and my my style has kind of 
been the same since I was like in my early 20s. I think you and your young, basically before 25, probably, you're just so, you're always looking, even if you have a super safe family unit, supportive family Mm. unit, I think you're just always looking outside of yourself for like how you should be. Right. And so, whether that's in, for me, it was always books. I was like a crazy, voracious reader as a kid. And I was just always trying to learn about how other people lived so that I could find heroes and like base my thoughts and opinions and aesthetics and morals on these other people who seem to perhaps have it figured out or at least have it figured out in like 200 pages. Um, was it a pre the pre influencers <laughs> approach to uh, it was to Harry finding lifestyle models. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harry, Harry, where, where do you go for your Christmas vacay, Harry? <laughs> um. So yeah, I think that that's just also what childhood is trying to answer those questions. Um, determine or hopefully I, I don't think this is singular to a few or to me um where you're just like who do I want to be um and yeah my parents are artistic people my mom she's an architect and she, but for undergrad she wanted to be a painter and my dad has always been making things with his hands or painting things or drawing things they're, they're both very talented um but you know, worked, they worked the sort of corporate version of those jobs as an architect. And my dad was a horticulturist and a contractor. Horticulturist. And my brother's an artist slash contractor. What kind of artist is your brother? He's, he makes furniture. He studied sculpture. So he was doing, oh, there, he had a company with his wife, Carrie, called Glare Goods. For a long time, yeah. which were these sort of puddle-shaped mirrors. And then he was like, fuck this, I don't want to do it anymore. And I said, good for you, do whatever you want. He said, fuck my <laughs> personal he... brand. <laughs> He's like, I feel like I'm being reduced to puddle mirrors. And I was like, I hear you. Yeah. Uh, and now he makes furniture, really cool wooden furniture. Nice. Yeah. That's a nice Everybody's variety. Everybody's got a little. Yeah. We love sustainability. We love, I'm probably, yeah, I don't know. Everyone's got a little creative bone. And do they still live in, you grew up in Virginia, is that right? You said Virginia? Yeah, my brother and Carrie are in Richmond and my parents are in, they sold our house, our sort of childhood house a couple years ago. They're like, do you care? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Do whatever you want. Be, be free. You are now free. Not that you need my permission, but um, home is where the heart is, not where the bricks are. And they sold their house and they moved to a two-bedroom apartment in D.C. and sold everything or got rid of everything. They're so happy. Oh, so liberating. So liberating. My mom's like, why do you have all this stuff? Why do you have three floors of stuff? I was like, I don't, I don't know. Get rid of it. Just accumulates over a lifetime. It's really hard, like you say, you know, in the same way. It's just hard to resist the imperative to build it up, especially when you've got space. You know, you fill the space yeah. you, you have, really. Yeah. I know I think about this a lot whenever I see the Manhattan mini storage ads 
which are funny. But I'm like, why do storage. we need storage? Our uh, apartments are so storage. small. Don't get me started on storage. I had a storage unit in New York for a while. After, to be fair, I'd given up my apartment. It wasn't like additional to the apartment. But I went back to, I I'd like, I put myself in storage when I gave up my apartment in New York because I went to Mexico for a while and I kind of intended to come back. And then there was a pandemic. I don't know if you heard about it. But um, I had to go. <laughs> I had to go back to London from Mexico, and so all my shit was still in storage in New York, and I was paying for it. And so I went back partly because I was like, I can't keep paying for this storage unit, you know. Yeah. And of course, I opened it up, and I, I was like, oh, I don't need any of this shit. What <laughs> was in shit. there? Was I mean, like not like anything clothes no I'd got rid of the majority of my furniture there was a handful of like sentimental things that I'd put in there that you know I would have been a bit sad if it had been set on fire but like (laughs) it really was a reminder of like how pointless it is to accumulate stuff because I don't know maybe that's because I wasn't like a a super thoughtful like fashion consumer in my 20s and I had bought a lot of junk it wasn't I think some people I know have got like great pieces that they bought in their 20s that they'd be sad to lose but equally they're because of that fact they're probably the kind of people who would care more anyway whereas like I feel like I've had good shit over the years and I've sold it or lost it or I don't know it's gotten lost in the fray and I don't think about any of it so yeah yeah that was a reminder um but I wanted to ask you also like I mean, if you have been a voracious reader from childhood, I'm sure there's been like many, many areas of your reading life. But what kind of what kind of um, like I find like I'm drawn to certain ideas and certain types of writing at certain periods of my life. And like I just wondered what what does that look like for you now? Like what kind of what kind of books and, and, and themes do you find yourself drawn to in the reading you do at the moment? Um. I recently I've been drawn to just women. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> women. <laughs> <laughs> women writing about being a woman. Um, I yep. mentioned in that, our email, like the Deborah Levy, my friend Bree recommended. She's like, oh, you would really like this. I just read it for a book club. And I was like, okay. Opened it, didn't put it down. I read it and I think I read it in like four hours. It's not a very long yeah. book, but even so, I was like, couldn't put it down, speeding through it, underlining shit, crying. <laughs> yeah. I was like, whatever, wherever I was mentally that day, I was like ready for this <laughs> book, which is sort of, um, it's, I like books that are both intimate and vulnerable and also feel zoomed out enough that you can integrate yourself into the storyline where I'm like taking lessons from this woman's, is it a memoir or is it not? Is it fiction? No, it's a memoir. And it's also, I think you, you said you read the cost of living, right? So that's, that's the middle book of a trilogy. Did you read the one before and after? the other two. No. Yeah, there's um, the f- yeah. I I read them out of order, which was <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, there's. The, I think she calls it her living autobiography. So she has three three parts, and the cost of living, from what I remember, is the one that deals with sort of like the real crux of her life as like a mother and a 
right and running a home yeah. and sort of working and, and yeah and then the and one like preceding that is divorce much- and then also like having these conversations like having realizations during conversations with men where she's like you never ever say your wife's name and that's weird right yeah um she is yeah i'm excited is- to read the other two yeah, they're quite different. Or oh, I found them certainly the first one's quite different. Um she is I enjoyed those books for exactly the thing that you're talking about there. Once it's like very sort of um, you know, granular details of her daily life and quite sometimes quite mundane details, but then she also like not not that not that any of her writing is mundane, just like she'll recount quite, you know, the, the facts of, of her life as a woman, but then weaves it in with this sort of like much more sort of like cerebral philosophical observations on, on yeah. womanhood more broadly. And, but does it in this like super sim- simple language that's kind of disarming. You have to like, you're like, Oh, that was, uh, that was actually incredibly profound. profound. But she's like put yeah. it in next to like something about how she'd made the dinner for her kids or whatever. Yeah, yeah, Which, yeah. I love writing like that. Yeah, she's 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 brilliant, actually, and also yeah. just like a badass, interesting woman who lives in Paris now, and like just seems so cool. She just seems. I love really, it when uh, I love it when writing yeah. feels like the like you can just tell that they're so talented. The talent is so innate in them, like a gift. <laughs> I have no idea how difficult it is for this woman to write. Um, But when you're reading it on the page, it feels like she, it just flowed out of her and that writing. Yeah. You can't fake that. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed her writing for that reason. And what, what, is there any, I'm always like looking for new woman, women books. (laughs) Let's call that our category. Women books. Wait, I made a list for you. Did you read Open Me by Lisa Lucascio? Lucascio. I did not. Never even heard of it. It came out a couple years ago. It's the horniest book I've ever read. Oh, okay. <laughs> like it's like a it's it's like a Tessa Mosh bag, but less dark. Still okay. a little bit dark, but less dark than Eileen. You know, dark is fine. Um, dark. And it's really good. I recommend that. Okay. It's a. It's from the point of view of a. She's in college, so she's quite young, and she's yeah, she's just trying to figure some stuff out, and she's doing things for the plot, and she's trying to have adventures, and it's just so many things go wrong, and it's very fascinating. Um, I'll add that to the list. Other women books I love are Eve Babbitt's. Love Eve. Love Eve. Recently I read She's a much Days bigger Fest. fan of, of LA than you, though. She, uh, oh, yeah, she loves LA. She's big into I LA. Reading, I was like, I got this offer to open the store in LA, and I was like, oh, I mean, I got to do it for the brand. But, like, do I want to do it? Like, what about my own Anna Gray integrity? <laughs> And I was yeah. reading, I was reading Slow Days, Fast Company, and I was like, you know what, LA is kind of cool. <laughs> I mean, it is set LA's in like, cool if you can like, like run into Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's exactly what it's like these days, right? It's not just like TikTokers yeah. um, yeah. themselves no. getting Hailey Bieber smoothies. Oh, um, no, I, I, uh, 
I like to buy into the mythology of LA sometimes it is. And she, she like, if you want to get into like a LA is a dreamy place headspace, she's so good for that. And like, I don't know, it's, it's so kind of nice to just let yourself get entranced by it. I think you can, for, for short spells of time, I can totally get on board with like the LA delusion of like, this is the best place ever. And you can just live the life you want to live and you can just roll with it. Yeah, and then you'll have like, um, a moment of uh, crushing reality. And <laughs> You're like, this and is then, not sustainable. This is um, not what you told me it was going to be like. <laughs> I also love the way she she weaves um, like style and fashion is such an important part of those stories. It yeah. just paints such a good picture. And like, yeah. Earth, well, I would imagine for diamonds. you it's kind of rich rich in sort of like visual references for yeah the vintage, the vintage um, era another two women writers that in my mind hold hands but they're of different eras and one of them's dead <laughs> angela <laughs> carter obsessed yeah. with angela carter and carmen maria machado I haven't read any Angela Carter. Weirdly, I had like a spell of reading her work when I was quite young, maybe a bit too young to fully appreciate it. And um, I need to revisit it. And and um, the second writer you said, Carmen Maria Machado, is it? I've, yeah. Her, her that big that book she did. What's the name? My my body. Is that the her, one I'm thinking of? Her body and other stories. That's the short story. And then she wrote a novel. That I can't remember the name of. So many people have referenced that book to me and I still haven't read it, but you're telling me I it's should, right? mind-blowing. Okay, mind-blowing. And I say they, in my mind, they hold hands because they, it's very, I think, uh, sort of using the formula of fairy tale to, as a framework for contemporary existence of women mm. is so clever and also just like fun to read for everybody because mm. there's like nostalgia but you're also like oh fuck being a woman is terrifying and shitty. Mm. and so i love the way that they intelligently do that and it's i also love fairy tales I'm like obsessed i mean i guess the tales. thing about fairy tales is that they always do have an incredibly dark element to them don't they like even the ones They're that super we super dark absorb as children so dark grims so dark everybody dies oh, or like loses God. a limb <laughs> yeah no those are great Disney- recommendations yeah those are good ones i love them what's next um, on your list do you have anything on your bedside uh your what do you call it in america nightstand nightstand table um, i'm reading this book that i don't that is like okay, but it doesn't. Com- I don't feel compelled. Where is it? It's called. It's called Trust. Oh, here, Trust by Hernan Diaz. It won the Pulitzer. It's about mm. New York in the nineteen twenties and like a Wall Street tycoon. Eh. It's it's okay. I mean, it sounds Barack like Obama loved it. As well. Sorry, good enough. For, <laughs> it was good, good enough, enough for, for me. Black. I mean, I'm very into like buying any books about old New York as well. But I also do think that if you're like not into a book, you should just after after a reasonable effort, just give up and move on. Because I don't know, we you know, 
we all wish we, we could read time more, but the reality is you're not going to have time for all the books you want to read in the world so I think there's a difference between giving up someone was asking me today actually like how can I read more and I was like a major key is just to read books that you enjoy because when you're you are in the midst of a novel or whatever that you love like you just it's not it's not it's not forced you know you can't wait to get back to that book equally it's quite hard to find books like that you know even like, I'm constantly yeah. scrolling for books but I, I rarely find a book that does that to me like oh I'm just gonna tear through but the, this that feeling is so special and good okay imagine if we had that feeling about that thing that we wanted to buy you should only buy it if you have that feeling okay this is a nice full um, circle as, as I'm like aware that we need to round up the interview because I'm like, I could talk to you for 10 hours, but. I know, um, this is fun. I could keep going. Uh, wait, but I have a book. Wait, did you read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow? I read that, yeah. But you, that, funny, that, that book, that book, I read that book in like two days and yeah. I, and I hadn't, um, I wrote about it actually in, in a newsletter a couple of, like about a month ago because I didn't even read the blurb. I was about to get on a flight and, and I was, and like, I'd, I think I'd read someone reference it in an interview and said they enjoyed it. And I just bought it without reading the blurb, which I don't think I've ever done in my life. I had no idea wow. it was about gaming. <laughs> so when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is about a book about the gaming. I mean, not that it's explicitly about gaming, but that's the world it's set in. And I'm not going to lie, yeah. that probably would have disturbed me because I'm, don't know, probably Same. a little, should be a little bit more open-minded, but it's, it's incredible incredibly like compulsive read isn't it yeah I was I was so entertained and I I like the portrayal of friendship I thought it was great I've been recommending yeah. it to everybody decent and I was so surprised yeah yeah so important yeah no that is a I have to say if I if someone was like trying to just get a novel they want to tear through and really like sink into that is she did it she did a great job she did a great job I was really impressed. I just had that experience reading a super weird book, which you might like called, because <laughs> you're super weird. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> that super funny. weird. You'll like this. It's weird. Um, called Big Swiss. Have you heard of that book, Big Swiss? No. I'm going to write it's it down. In, uh, it's set in Hudson. So it's kind of funny, like weird upstate New York characters. Um, Great. And it's about a woman who transcribes uh, a sex therapist's um sessions with his clients and then sort of develops this weird like parasocial relationship with a with one of his clients and then sort of enters a real relationship with a, this person so and it's Sounds about fascinating women. We yeah, love it's a women. good one it's a good <laughs> one um but yeah no I love I just to just to sort of bring things to a close I I think your point that's a very good point. I think in books and with clothes, unless you're really super excited about it, like just put it down. Yeah. And if you're still thinking about it later, revisit. Revisit hundred percent. I think that's a good, as we, as we uh, enter this new year, I think that's a good motto. I'm going to, um, I try to keep track of the books I read, but I'm also going to try and keep track of what I purchased this year. It, you can survey back and be like, what actually felt like a great purchase, you know? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. More I agree. Thoughtful. I think that's a good idea. More thoughtful consumption of books, more thoughtful consumption of, of uh, clothing items. Mm-hmm. There we go. Well, thank you for making the time to speak with me, Anna. It's it's been a pleasure, and I wish it was in real life. But um, next this time I'm so in New York, I will. Yeah, next yeah. time I'm in London, I'll let you know. We'll, we'll do you it face to face. Do you come to London? Sounds like you do. If you said you were thinking about moving here. Yeah, I got. I one of my best friends lives there, and I was there a couple of times last year. I'm sure I'll be there a couple of times this year too. Oh, well, please drop me a line. Love to see you. Um, And, yeah, I look forward to seeing where your new store locations are. That's intriguing. I don't know if you want to share them. Maybe it's too early, but I'm I'm excited for you. I don't want to jinx it. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, my love. Good. Well, you know I'm reading the news. (laughs) Reading, watching, (laughs) waiting. Waiting. (laughs) Thank you again. I appreciate you. Thank you.